geopolitics and trade tensions in particular were key economic and market drivers in 2019. But in 2020, we see trade tensions moving sideways, giving the global economy some room to grow. A number of recent developments underscore our view. Over the past month, we've seen the signing of an initial, albeit limited, trade deal between the U.S. and China. We've seen the ratification by the U.S. of the U.S. trade agreement with Mexico and Canada. And we've seen a significantly reduced risk of a no-deal Brexit in the U.K. But despite these positive developments, a number of other geopolitical risks still loom and could undermine growth. Tensions between the U.S. and Iran remain elevated. Technology competition between the U.S. and China is likely to persist. And 2020 could see one of the most consequential elections in modern U.S. history. This is all taking place against a backdrop of geopolitical fragmentation and heightened levels of political polarization. On this episode of The Bid, I'll speak to Tom Donilon, chairman of the BlackRock Investment Institute and former U.S. National Security Advisor. Tom outlines the key geopolitical risks on our radar and his view for how they're likely to evolve. I'm your host, Catherine Kress. We hope you enjoy. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Catherine. Nice to be here. So today I'd like to discuss a number of themes for our geopolitical outlook for 2020. Mm -hmm. And one of the core themes to our market narrative in 2019 was global trade tensions, Mm -hmm. particularly tracking the issues between the U.S. and China. So thinking about global trade tensions broadly in the U.S.-China specifically, should we expect more of the same in 2020? So in 2019, We had a situation where, in fact, geopolitical issues, and especially trade tensions, as you mentioned, weighed on markets. And we think towards the end of 2019, we saw some relief in that area. So we had the phase one trade agreement between the United States and China entered into and then signed by President Trump and the Chinese representative in the United States. We had the Congress pass and the president sign the United States-Canada-Mexico arrangement succeeding the NAFTA deal. And we also had in the United Kingdom, the election of a conservative government with quite a good margin and with the prospect that it could be in place for an extended period of time, taking away some of the concerns around Brexit. So we had some relief, which we think provides some breathing room for an uptick in growth in 2020. Now, on trade specifically, Mm -hmm. we did have essentially in the phase one agreement a pause in the trade tensions and the trade escalations between the United States and China. We had a two-year period where on a regular basis we had a lot of disruption in the markets as a result of the trade war, if you will. And now we have an agreement which essentially brings us to a pause and provides an opportunity for de-escalation and provides markets with more certainty with respect to the U.S.-China trade relationship. We expect implementation of that agreement in 2020. It did, however, leave key issues for negotiation in a second phase, a phase two agreement. And those issues are really important in some ways, much tougher than the issues that were addressed in the initial agreement. Those issues include subsidies and cyber rules of the road and the role of state-owned enterprises going forward. The specifics with respect to the phase one agreement between the United States and China include steps that are focused on conduct by China with respect to its treatment of foreign companies, and especially U.S. companies in China. It provides for significant increases in purchases by China of U.S. goods and services, $200 billion more over the next two years. And it had some trade relief, essentially a pause in implementation of tariffs. Mm -hmm. But it also it's important to note that the United States and China have left in place 
from the U.S. side, tariffs on $360 billion worth of imports. So we're still in a situation with a lot of tariffs on both sides. Mm -hmm. You know, the bottom line, I think, here is that there's a pause. But the truth is that we're in a competitive phase in the relationship between the United States and China. And in my judgment, it's going to take years to work that out, frankly, as we kind of work through a new era. And as I mentioned, we do have a new North American trade agreement Mm -hmm. entered into, which is a positive for the North American and for the global trade markets. We are watching, and we will watch this year, the U.S.-EU trade relationship. Mm -hmm. There are a number of issues which are on the plate between the United States and the EU. There have been agreement at the Davos meetings between the United States and the EU to begin some discussions. That's one we'll watch for 2020. Right. And I think between the U.S. and Europe, one of the key issues that will be really important to watch is whether and how European nations or together as the EU move forward in potentially implementing a digital services tax. Yes. But Tom, you mentioned that we are in a more competitive phase in the U.S.-China relationship. So I'd like to build on that a little bit. You mentioned that the U.S. and China will move into a phase two negotiation that could begin to address some of the more structural issues. But one of the themes that we've been paying attention to is technology competition between the U.S. and China. How should we be thinking about this more competitive phase Mm -hmm. in the U.S.-China relationship? Catherine, I think in many ways the technology competition between the United States and China is an even more important issue going forward than the trade negotiations. It's important to get stability in the trade negotiations, and we'll see how it gets implemented. But at the very same time that the United States was entering into this important phase one agreement on trade between the United States and China, we are involved in a a pretty aggressive set of steps on both sides with respect to technology competition. Mm -hmm. And essentially what you have is the United States seeking to extend its technology lead and leadership, and China trying to move up in terms of its leadership and technology. And it's really a competition for the commanding heights, if you will, of the technologies and industries of the future. Mm -hmm. There are limits on investment and close review of investments by China into U.S. technologies. There are being considered right now more restrictions on the export of technology to China. There are specific steps that have been taken with respect to companies like Huawei, Mm -hmm. uh, where the United States has significant security concerns, and it's had an aggressive global effort to try to address those concerns, and it's met with mixed success around the world. You have a review of people, Mm -hmm. scholars and researchers coming in and out of the United States from China. You have had some companies sanctioned by the United States because of human rights concerns. So on the U.S. side, there's been a number of steps with respect to Mm -hmm. China and technology. And on the Chinese side, you've had President Xi and his government talk quite frequently and take a number of steps to try to, in their words, achieve more technological Mm self-sufficiency in China. So you do have really a significant competition underway Mm -hmm. between the United States and China. Now, that raises the concern about whether or not the Chinese and U.S. economies are decoupling, which is kind of the word of the day, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the U.S. and China economies are not going to decouple. We're much too integrated for that to happen. But I do think that you do see some signs of decoupling with respect to the technology sector. And we'll be watching that for concerns about differences in ecosystems mm-hmm. and governance and standards, which could be quite significant for the global economy going forward, including around the question of whether or not we see some elements of deglobalization. Right. It seems like this is going to create a much more uncertain environment for countries and companies 
to navigate. You mentioned decoupling is the word of the day. The other phrase that I've seen a lot is new Cold War. Would you go so far as to frame this in that light? I don't like that phrase, Cold War, right? Because it's freighted with a lot of history. You know, Mm -hmm. we're not in a new Cold War between the United States and China. The Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, which lasted for many decades, doesn't bear a lot of resemblance to this. Um, Mm -hmm. In that case, we had a very minor economic relationship with the Soviet Union. For example, I think these statistics are close to right. I think during the latter part of the 1980s, the total economic activity Mm -hmm. between the United States and the Soviet Union was about $2 billion a year. That's about what we do in a day between the United States and China right now. So these economies are much more integrated. Mm -hmm. We're in some sort of existential contest with respect to each other's systems. We're not involved in some sort of global containment effort or military confrontation Mm -hmm. globally with China. But there is intense competition around this. Mm -hmm. And I do think what you could see is maybe some virtual walls with respect to technology between the United States and China. That leads to concerns which we'll be watching quite closely with respect to whether or not you see two technological ecosystems developing and flowing from that, whether you see different standards and governance systems with respect to uh, technology going forward. And that presents challenges for the global economy. It presents challenges for countries and companies around the world that have Mm -hmm. to navigate it. So it will be very important for us to continue monitoring moving forward. One of the other risks that we've highlighted as having the potential to be a significant market driver and, in fact, has driven markets are tensions in the Gulf. Mm -hmm. We saw developments between the U.S. and Iran over the course of the past months. What's the current state of play between the U.S. and Iran and the Gulf, and how should we expect this to develop moving forward? Yeah, there have been significant tensions in the Gulf really since last spring. They've begun to escalate, but especially into the fall where there are a number of significant events that took place, which increased tensions in the Gulf, and particularly between the United States and Iran. Mm -hmm. You had on September 14th the Iranian attack on Saudi Aramco facilities inside Saudi Arabia, which was a significant attack at Abqaiq on a very significant part of the global energy infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You had on October 6th disruption where the Turks, after a phone call with President Trump and President Erdogan, came into northeast Syria and pushed in, causing a lot of disruption in Northeast Syria. On January 3rd, you had the acknowledged attack by the United States on General Qasem Soleimani of Iran, the head of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Quds Force. On January 8th, you had the Iranian response, right, with missile attacks against two facilities in Iraq, including the al-Assad air base out in western Iraq. After that event, right, because tensions were building quite significantly, you did have a pause and a pullback after the events of January 8th, where President Trump said that no U.S. casualties had taken place, there were no U.S. deaths as a result of it. And we had kind of a pullback, if you will, I think, from direct confrontation. That doesn't mean, however, that there's not going to be, I think, continued tensions between the United States Mm -hmm. and Iran. And we could look to Iran to undertake maybe some asymmetric steps challenging the United States going forward. But we have pulled back, at least for the moment, Mm-hmm. from a direct confrontation, an all-on kind of military confrontation between the United States and Iran. Now, we have had concerns raised about security in the region with respect to mm-hmm. uh, facilities. There are concerns about what this means in terms of ISIS and its resurgence. The reaction with respect to oil has been fairly modest, I think mm-hmm. recognizing that we're not in a kind of a full-on direct military confrontation and also the structure of supply globally. But there remains high level of tension and potential volatility. Sure. So you mentioned that Iran could continue to take a number of asymmetric steps. What do you mean by that? Well, the Iranians have a lot of capabilities. Mm -hmm. 
They have a set of proxy militias and other organizations in the region Mm -hmm. whom they have used in the past to undertake actions against their enemies, including the United States. Mm -hmm. The action that caused the United States, the approximate cause for United States attacks on Shia militias in Iraq was an attack by a Shia militia group against a base in Kirkuk. So they have proxy forces in the region that they have for many years used to carry out their goals, right? Mm -hmm. Indeed, one of the projects, if you will, over the last two decades that General Qasem Soleimani worked on was the development of these proxy groups around the region from Hezbollah towards the Mediterranean, across the region, including a number of Shia militia groups inside Iraq, number one. Number two, Iran is an adversary with fairly sophisticated cyber capabilities. Mm-hmm. Those are the kinds of things which we've seen them use in the past uh, right. with respect to kind of asymmetric engagement. So there's a number of steps I think that they can take that would be you know, short of direct confrontation with the United States, which would not be in their interest, I don't think, given the United States' preponderance of power. But you could see them engage using some of those kinds of tools over the coming year, I think. So, Tom, picking up specifically on the cyber point you Mm -hmm. mentioned, how are you viewing cyber risk in 2020? I know we've highlighted some of the risks around rising tensions with Mm -hmm. cyber-enabled adversaries. I think that we actually have an increased risk with respect to cyber in 2000 and 2020. I think we have the really increased risk of a threat of highly disruptive attacks in the United States against the U.S. infrastructure and electoral systems and individual companies. Why do I say that? Number one, because I do think that there will be a lot of risk around the 2020 elections. The U.S. intelligence community has pointed to that risk and the intention of outside forces to try to disrupt the 2020 election via cyber techniques. Second is that we have increased tensions with countries in the world that have quite a bit of cyber capability, including Iran, as we talked about earlier, Mm -hmm. and China and Russia and North Korea. Mm -hmm. So we have adversaries with whom we have increased tension that have significant cyber capabilities. Third is that we've seen cyber bad actors, right, criminals, really moving against some of the weak links in our infrastructure in the United States. And they include especially cities and states that might not have the sophistication or the resources to do the kinds of defense that you need to do. And we've seen that in the case of so-called ransomware, Mm -hmm. where you have criminals coming in from around the globe and shutting down the systems of cities and states and demanding in order for those systems to be put back online again Mm -hmm. or for material to be returned that those states and cities pay them ransom. The other thing I'm concerned about, frankly, with respect to cyber is there is really what some commentators in the field have called a revolution in deceptive technologies, Mm -hmm. so-called deep fakes, which is where I essentially can take your voice or your image, right, and manipulate it so that you're doing or saying something that you didn't really say or do, but the observer can't tell the difference, right? Those technologies are really increased in terms of sophistication, I think, present a danger going forward, both in terms of our political discourse, but also in terms of risk to particular companies mm-hmm. going forward. So it really seems like risk is heightened across the board. You started with the U.S. elections, and this seems to be kind of the question of the day. What is your outlook for the November elections? We're about 10 months away. Well, I'm not really here prepared to make a prediction on the election 10 (laughs) months away from now because that's an eternity in politics. Uh, Having been involved in most of the major elections in the United States since 1980. But I can't say this, right? Mm -hmm. What do we see going forward? First of all, the U.S. elections are a major event. It's really a series of events for investors globally to watch and assess going Mm -hmm. forward. Second is that I do think we're in for a tumultuous election cycle, and that's in a very polarized nation. And I think that's demonstrated by the fact that the first event 
in the election cycle for 2020 are the impeachment proceedings. It's only the third time in American history that we've had a U.S. president put in front of the Senate in this kind of highly stylized trial Mm -hmm. proceeding. On the elections generally, I think all things would point towards a close election. Mm -hmm. Typically, the United States incumbents have a lot of advantages here, but the current state of affairs, I think, is that it points towards a close election. Most of the national polls in the United States point towards a close election. Mm -hmm. And indeed, most of the polls where it really counts is in a number of key states in the United States, and those also look quite close at this point. The second thing I say about the election in the United States is it's going to be highly engaged. Mm -hmm. Most of the models and analysts that I follow indicate now that they expect one of the highest turnouts in the modern history of the country in the 2020 election. And that's the strong feelings, I think, on all sides. The third thing is that it will be a consequential election. The policy differences and approaches between the two parties, between the Republican Party incumbent president and the Democratic Party candidates, the gulf between their policy preferences and proposals are really substantial. So we'll be looking as we go along here as to making assessments, right, as to what we think the outcome might be, because the outcome will be quite consequential in terms of policy, which will obviously be quite important to investors globally. Tom, we've just covered most of the world over the course of our conversation. Are there any risks or areas that we haven't discussed today that you're particularly worried about? Well, there are always the kind of risks that can emerge that can affect markets, like the coronavirus that's emerged out of China, Mm -hmm. which has had some effect on outlooks with respect to global growth. I think that, you know, one that we've been paying close attention to is the ongoing protest movements around the world. You know, they've been fueled by rising income and wealth inequality, weak government performance, environmental concerns in some cases, climate change concerns. And those protests have taken place against the backdrop of a pretty positive economic environment, at least on a macro level. And one concern that we're focused on and thinking about is what happens in a downturn? You know, what kind of reaction are we going to get in a downturn? Because many governments are ill-equipped to respond with limited monetary and fiscal and political maneuvering room. So we are focused on that. And of course, the proliferation of social media has exacerbated and facilitated a lot of the protest movement. So we're focused on thinking about and monitoring what happens as particular nations, countries, governments move towards a softer economic environment when they've had a lot of this kind of unrest and a more benign economic environment. And it's interesting bringing all these different themes together. It seems like not only will we face some constraints on the fiscal and monetary Mm -hmm. side, Mm -hmm. but in a more competitive geopolitical environment, in some cases a more polarized domestic environment, even the political capacity to respond to a potential downturn could be more limited. I think that's right. As we said, you have more limited tools Mm -hmm. than you had, for example, in 2008, 2009 with respect to central banks and monetary policy. You have more polarized political environments inside countries, Mm -hmm. which make it challenging to develop the kind of fiscal response that you need to develop. But more importantly, we also need to look at internationally, are we in a position, and we should be thinking hard about how to get in this position, where we can work internationally, kind of in a global way, Mm -hmm. to address economic challenges. We were able to do that, by the way, in 2008 and 2009, working with other countries from around the world to have a unified response Mm -hmm. to the great financial crisis. So, Tom, I'd like to conclude with a rapid-fire round, if that's okay. okay. So just three really quick questions for you. Number one, which country have you traveled to the most? Mm. I think that I've traveled to Israel the most times in my diplomatic and business career. I think I've been to Israel 26 or 27 times. And which country do you like going to the most? Well, the country I like going to the most is returning to the United States. That's the country I like coming to the (laughs) most after my trips. After all these years, it's still the best place to go to and come back to. 
So you were the national security advisor to President Obama. Does that make you the highest-ranking former national security official in your family? I don't know technically if that's correct. My wife is an ambassador. My wife's name is Kathy Russell. She was the ambassador at large at the State Department for women's and girls' issues. So I'm not the highest-ranking former anything in my family. She might have a leg up on you there. Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. It's been great having you. Thank you. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice, and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up, and you may not get back the amount invested. In the U.S. and Canada, this material is intended for public distribution. In the U.K., this is issued by BlackRock Investment Management U.K. Limited, authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, registered office 12 Throgmorton Avenue, London, EC2N, 2DL, telephone plus 44020, 7743-3000. Registered in England and Wales, number 202-0394. For your protection, telephone calls are usually recorded. BlackRock is a trading name of BlackRock Investment Management UK Limited. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management, North Asia Limited, and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management, Australia Limited, ABN 13-006-165-975-AFSL-230-523, BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell, or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at www.blackrock.com. mx Copyright 2019, BlackRock Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.